there. Welcome to the Uplift Podcast, where we talk all things leadership for women in higher ed. I'm Carol Shabrias, and I want to help make your leadership path a little easier, a bit brighter, and a hell of a lot more fun. Here at the Uplift, we mash up real stories, real feelings, real theory, and occasional f- bombs, all to help you become the kind of bleeping awesome leader you would love to follow. I'm so glad you're here. Let's jump in. Hey there, welcome to this week's show. We are wrapping up our month of exploring the terrific skills you can take from your teaching into your leadership. Today's guest is Stephanie Cawthon, a professor in the College of Education at the University of Texas at Austin in the Educational Psychology Department, where she also has a courtesy appointment in special education. Stephanie has been at UT Austin since 2007, and she did give the university's first commencement address in ASL in 2020. Stephanie is a prolific researcher, writer, and an in-demand professor and mentor. Interestingly, she's also an experienced stage manager, which influences how how she teaches. What she and I really dig into in our conversation is all the ways we can build community and a sense of purpose, both for our students and for our colleagues. So in the classroom (laughs) and in those darn meetings. And I'll be honest, before we get started, just so you know, this is the first time I've interviewed someone deaf and I learned a ton about accommodations and access in my own practice. I have a lot of improvement to make. To keep this episode accessible, we recorded our conversation with our cameras on, and this way the ASL interpreter's work is visible and accessible to everyone. So if you're listening to this via a regular podcast channel, you're going to hear bits of audio silence when there's actually active communication happening on the screen. If you have the chance, then I encourage you to watch this podcast as well as listen to it, and I put a link to the video version in the show notes. All right, my friends, let's go. I've been exploring this idea that teaching and leadership, I think are actually kind of the same thing. I don't think they're very different. And so what I wanted to do was talk to people who teach, who also have some experience in some kind of leadership. I'm going to say role because I'm going to let you explain to me why it should be opportunity. I'm looking forward to hearing that. But where they do some kind of leadership activities, Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a mother, I've trained dogs, I devoted a whole podcast episode to why puppy training is like leadership or what I learned. So I, but I wanted, sometimes I just get, you know, I'm spinning here and I love hearing other people's ideas. So I wanted to kind of start with this idea that they're similar and I'll kind of open with a little reminder of the two quotes that um, I put in the Google Doc. But then, Stephanie, I like this is much more about us hearing from you. Um, so I'll shift to questions, and then we'll if we can go through um, why you are drawn to teaching. And I love some of the things you shared in the Google Doc. Um, and if we can talk about what leadership looks like in your classroom from anybody, um, that would be great to hear about. I would love to get to Priya Parker. I'm also a huge fan of that book. And I'd like to save that for the end if we can. And then I think that will take us to time. Okay, perfect. Okay, Okay, so um, 
<clears throat> we are totally warmed up, but let me start with a huge, excited welcome. Um, <laughs> we've been Zooming for 53 minutes, and I've already learned more in this 53 minutes than um, I've learned in maybe any single 53-minute bucket recently. But I'm really excited to have all of you here. Um, I'm not even sure how to introduce you all. <laughs> so um, let me welcome Stephanie and her interpreters. And then can I ask you to introduce yourselves quickly to the audience, and then we'll get into the meat of our conversation. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with you today. I'm super excited to be here. Podcasts are my favorite kind of quick learning opportunity. So to be with you is super fun today. Um, my primary role is faculty staff at the University of Texas at Austin. I've been here for almost 18 years, which is kind of mind blowing. I can't believe it. Feels like just yesterday when I came on board. I'm a full professor. I have a lot of responsibilities, a lot of opportunities to impact students, learning, and management, both. Uh, I have a few roles. Um, it's been nice for me later in my career to lead things uh, and also roles in terms of service and serving the community. I've experienced with directing centers that are federally funded, typically is where the funding comes from, and that's a that's huge. They're all research-based and evidence-based for improving the lives of students with disabilities. That's typically where that focus lies. And really integrating research and teaching, administration are three activities that I take on pretty regularly. And those are the things that I do related to the topic. So we can dive into any of those later as you see fit. Great. Thank you. I Can we also have the interpreters introduce themselves? Is that a thing? Well, what I'll say today is that we have two interpreters with us today, Amanda Katz and Elizabeth Weston. They're here with us today and they're supporting uh, communication access. So I'll take care of those intros. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. So Stephanie, um, let me start with two quick quotes or two quick reminders of um, comments from other people as a way of leading into my first question for you. So um, in Joan Gallus and Lee Bowman's book, Reframing Academic Leadership, they talk about thinking and learning being at the heart of effective academic leadership. And in Ken Bain's book, What the Best College Teachers Do, he says that outstanding teachers are those who achieve remarkable success in helping their students learn in ways that make a sustained, substantial, and positive influence on how those students think act and feel. I've been an academic leader for more than 25 years, and I think that statement is as true of classroom teaching as it is of leading teams. And so what I'm hoping we can do today is talk a little bit about how those two ideas, that leadership is about teaching and learning, and that really effective teaching is about the learner on the other end and how they are changed by what they learn. I'd love to talk about that intersection for you in both the classroom and in the leadership work you do at the University of Texas at Austin. So if we can, let's start with questions about you as a teacher. I know teaching runs in your family. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is that draws you to teaching? 
So I just turned 50. And so I have been reflecting and thinking about kind of thinking through why I do what I do. And teaching is part of that. So I started teaching really early on in my life. I think, you know, I had a lot of opportunities to try teaching through college. I was a TA in high school. I helped my parents. They were both teachers. So I went to their classrooms. They were um, post-secondary working in colleges. So I've been around teaching and learning and education. That was just the culture of my family. So my first opportunities to really try to figure out my role in life goes way back to training, teaching, and education. It always was rooted there. It was very early on for me. I developed that. And I think my family always really valued the identity as a teacher. And so that was supported and encouraged. For people in my family who weren't official teachers, they were still teaching on the side, uh, tutoring or training or what have you. So literally everyone was involved in that space and that process. Again, it was a culture of education from a very early age. I never felt like that wasn't available or it wasn't an opportunity for me because it was a core value for my family. Now, when I got into post-secondary and college, a lot of my experiences were within the theater realm. I did uh, outside of classroom work, was always in the theater or in that space, developing people, helping people succeed in theater and on stage. I was behind the scenes. I wasn't on stage myself, but my role was stage manager. And so that was always providing structure, providing guidance and guidelines, timelines, really kind of helping manage the process and the people giving stage cues, uh, go now, it's time, get on, you're up. And then giving feedback and thinking through and helping folks critically think about how to improve their, their work and working with the team and the directors. So I was always thinking through how to improve that. And my experience of working with a group for the audience, for the, the group of actors and the cast I was working with. So for me, that really just kind of naturally developed my teaching identity, and then it became more formalized. I wanted to understand how to better um, support people. And so it kind of the whole thing, just teaching, it sort of feels like a play to me. That that alone is like, that's worth a conversation by itself. That's fascinating to me. I'm, I'm also curious about something that um, we didn't talk about ahead of time, but that's, it's the idea that a lot of um, I'll okay, I'll speak about the generation of faculty who taught me. A lot of that teaching was lecture based. And when there was a discussion, it, sometimes that was led by the TA. I went to big R1s. Um, so discussions were kind of breakouts from the big lectures. But teaching, teaching was very much conveying knowledge or conveying information. And that is not what a stage manager does at all. And so I'm wondering if. I'm wondering what your experience is teaching from a place of orchestration and choreography in a culture where most uh, probably 18 years ago, most teaching wasn't like that. So I'm just curious about whether there's been 
how that's gone for you as somebody who's kind of grown into post-secondary teaching from a very different perspective than is typical. You know, it's still different to this day. Most of my colleagues don't teach with a connection to the content mindset. It's still information dissemination to students. I'm the expert. I shall deliver you the information. It is not across the board. It's not a standard approach uh, the way that I do it. Um, I evaluate a lot of faculty. That's just part of my role now at the university. And I'm still seeing that that's the primary identity, the primary comfort zone for the vast majority of faculty. So for me, I don't feel like um, I, I have a lot to say. I don't feel like I have a lot to tell you, but what I can do is provide the content, provide a framework, provide some evidence, some data based on research. I'm an R1 institution. <laughs> we still care very much about evidence-based and data collection. What does it mean and make meaning of it? We very much care about that. But I don't feel like my role is to tell you things. Almost never when working with students, like that's not my thing. However, I do have high expectations on the students and their learning, really high expectations for them. But for them to be self-driven, my real role is to provide opportunity for self, self-development skills and such. Really, the content is not that hard to be honest with you, just being transparent, but linking it in terms of how to apply it to your world, to your life, your future career. Listen, I can't do that for you. That's not something I can do for my student. And I don't want to, not my role, not my point, not my goal. What I want to do is give them the skills and the tools to be able to learn the things and apply the things. That's what I find important. And people often say, I learned so much in your class. And I'm like, The content, the amount of content that they read is minimal. The amount of teaching in the classical form that's done, limited. It's the activities that are linked back to that content. That's a lot. So really strategically helping people, helping those students really just encapsulate that information, not just a mind dump, is very different. And I think it's more valuable for their time and investment, more bang for their buck, so to speak. I mean, that's my goal anyway. That's that's kind of how I view it. I love that. It reminds me of Daniel Pink's autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And I think the um that's that for me is the the mm-hmm. core connection between leadership and teaching. A, a command and control leader tends not to inspire people and get their team thinking creatively and problem solving. Um, a command and control teacher is conveying information and grading people on their regurgitation of it. It's that other method that I think that I'm really drawn to when I try to connect teaching and leadership. So can you give us um, an example? Do you have any stories of what that um, that connection between leadership and teaching that is really about giving people autonomy and helping them grow in ways that's meaningful to them. What does that look like in your classroom? What does that look like with your students? You know, I think it's always about creating structure, 
creating buckets and helping people not feel so lost. Students, staff, faculty, really anyone on the team, leaderships, uh, even all the way up through the university levels. I mean, clearly, you know, we want people to, people need an organized style. And we want people to be like, oh, okay, I know where I'm at. I know where I'm going. I know where people with me are going. I can communicate that and articulate that. I think that's imperative. So a classroom activity, for example, that I might do is I often try to give a balance between individual level and group level. So really those two kind of audiences. So it's not always just an individual like writing independently, thinking or being reflective. So we start with that. Right. We start with something that's very individualized on the individual level for an opportunity for reflection to and there are different ways to approach that. And then we take what we've learned there and there's an opportunity for peer interaction surrounding that same content. So we take that and apply it. And then each person's on an even playing field. Uh, it'll typically be a small group conversation. Um, and sometimes one person will take up the time in the space and do all the talking. It happens. So I really want to be mindful of how to structure that conversation. Uh, you know, and it's true for leadership as well. Uh, whose quote unquote voice is being heard? How do we structure that space? We can't leave people to their own devices and wait and hope for it. It's not about hoping the conversation happens. It's creating structure and dialogue and opportunity in a safe space. So for me, it's really how I can bridge those gaps. So teaching and leadership, how to bring them together make meaning for people on an individual level and also create that same meaning on a group level with structure in place in a safe space, safe space with an opportunity for people to engage. And knowing that people have different backgrounds, right? Different levels of feeling safe, different ways of communicating and articulating, different strengths. So that needs to be really clearly stru structured. You can't just let people go and hope that it works. You know, there, there are different ways to manage this, right? Some people are like, I'll give a student a chance. They can do it on their own. And I'm like, well, I think administration is often afraid to apply a structure to a dialogue. And that's where we kind of get into trouble sometimes. Yes. And I know we both share an interest in well-facilitated meetings, which um, is a place where that free-flowing dialogue with no structure actually, I think, kind of kills creativity and and can deaden the interaction instead of spark it. Um, I had two questions came to mind as you were talking and um, and I think they'll get us toward that structure conversation, but I'll put them out. I'll put them both out there and you can do what you want with them. Um, one is how do your students respond to this? Right. So I'm I'm curious about both how students are in the classroom if they're in an active learning environment that might be very different from other places where they're learning on campus and sorry for my sirens um and then i'm also interested to know if you know at the end not not just if students learn a lot which you've said they tell you but if they feel more autonomous if they feel more purposeful if they feel the things that i think both a good leader and a good teacher want for their 
their people. So that's one question, sort of what's the student experience? And then the other question is, can you share examples of that kind of concept of structure, um, facilitation and structure, deep learning, and then shared learning in any kind of leadership setting? Like, do you have a story or an example of a time when that worked really well um, so that if people are listening and thinking about, could I even do this on my own campus? They can have a sense of what it might actually look like. Okay. I'm going to start with your second question because I can remember it. <laughs> I remember what you said. So I may ask you to repeat that first part again later after this. So example, examples of activities, right? Um, many of my strategies are based on drama-based instruction. And I'll give you a link for that. There's a lengthy list uh, and it's through UT. They're the department here on campus. There's a program called Drama for School. And I've worked with them for years, probably 15 years or better. And we've developed really specific activities of how to engage people with that idea of structure and inspiration, plus learning and interaction, just having that mindset. And so I apply many of those strategies to both in meetings with staff and in addition to my students. I really apply them in both spaces. One example that I can give you is when you enter a space, a physical space, set the tone. I, I feel like that's super important, right? And so what I'll often do is uh, early on in class, I'll put up posters like, you know, white boards or, or um, posters on the wall and say, what is disability? with a question mark after it, and I'll, I'll leave that up there. Then I'll ask people as they come into the room, they set up their chairs, I'll have them kind of get them thinking about the answers to those questions that I've posted around the room. There's a variety of different questions that I ask that lead to the theme of that day when I'm teaching. And so then I can kind of see what people's initial thoughts are, where, where they're starting from. Uh, they can be transparent because they're writing them up there on those papers. They have different colors. Each person may have their own colored pen. Um, and so, you know, people love that. And so I love that for them. It's a quiet space. They're not meant to talk to other people, but they can still see the thinking that's coming from the other people in the room as those lists fill out. Then throughout my presentation or, or lecture, two, three hours, whatever I have, I'm able to respond to those thoughts or questions. But like, let's say we're talking about disability, right? So I take a look at these posters that I've already hung around the room and I can see what they've said. I see where they're at. But like, tell me what you see. I get, and I won't tell them what's up there. I ask them, what are you seeing? What themes are coming up for you? What is giving you an aha moment? What emotions are coming up from you based on some of the comments that you're seeing around the room? What kind of attitudes are you seeing within the language? What kind of word choices are people using? And so that will spark some things. And, you know, I already know my lectures about the language of disability and the language and how attitudes and bias shape people's thoughts about disability. So this, though, I kind of pull from there where they're coming from. And it's really kind of a way in for me to approach the topic. And it, it kind of, I you know, I give them theory, I give them a framework, I give them a differing perspectives, what the content says, 
you know, and it doesn't come just from me. It comes from them and from evidence-based up students love it. They feel like their opinions and their uh, experience matter and they're valued. And then if someone is willing, I'll have them say why they wrote that. It's anonymous as they write it. Like if people don't know who wrote what, but if someone's comfortable and they're willing to share, I invite them to do so. Like, hey, so you wrote that. Why did you write that? And then I give a lot of time early on. So like everything at the beginning, I give a lot of time. And then we kind of get fast paced through it. As I've built in the structure as we kind of move through. It's one example of how I start a class, mostly dialogue based invitation to the content. There are hundreds of approaches, right? Different ways and methods that I, I use, but the goal is always the same. Does that make sense? It does. And I want to see it in action now. I, I want to, so I, I'm, I was about to say, I want to drive down to Austin and watch, except of course, I know because you shared with me offline that most of your teaching is online these days. And so thinking both about, well, thinking about space, setting the stage. I love that metaphor from a drama informed perspective. Um, We all were like crazy trying to figure this out in spring of 2020, how to do that online. Um, As you were describing what you do, I was picturing a physical classroom where the students are in a building and you're present and realized that's possibly not at all what you're really describing, that you might be describing what you do in an online space. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about even just this idea of um, setting the stage and kind of helping people navigate their way through something you've structured in an online space where I'm guessing like you you don't have students or many students at least camera off, disengaged, multitasking because the nature of your course requires them to be present in a different way. So somewhere in there was a question about, <laughs> can you um, help us understand what's how to do this in an online space, both or either from a meeting perspective or from a classroom perspective? So online, uh, an online classroom, I will typically do an asynchronous. For most activities, however, I do ask a scheduled time for group work, so I will have them book that, and that will be synchronous, same time and quote-unquote live, where they're all logged in and together. I have over 100 students, just so as you know. (laughs) So we do have to have a way to accommodate that, uh, you know, those 100 students, 123 students ish. So it's a lot of people coming together online. So I've got to I've got to keep that in mind and accommodate that. And so there are steps. The first step I would say is intro video, an intro video that comes from me that's pre-recorded with captioning, with access and everything all entailed. It's a 5-minute max intro video kind of explaining the purpose of the activities, the purpose of the content and really giving them that structure surrounding my expectations. 
Then secondly, I would say there's a brief reading that like of a, a blog or possibly um, a more casual read, not an heavy academic in-depth reading. I want to make it accessible for all my students, especially early on. Then a second reading will be more academic based, a little more in-depth. And so the theme will be the same across my introduction about, you know, and, and me presenting it live or recorded, and then the blog, the more casual and a personal experience story. Then again, we move into the more academic piece. The theme is consistent. And that's more traditional, that read one or two, maybe. I will not give five heavy articles like that. I just, I don't. Limit one to two. Then there's a discussion post that happens. And what I ask them to do is find something out there, um, a meme, a hashtag, a TikTok. It's something from their world that that makes sense to them so that we can apply this concept to them. It's their world, not mine. So I want them to go out and find something that is meaningful to them. And I want them to apply the concepts that we've done in those first three things I outlined. And they explain how it applies. They do that once or twice. Then I ask for two responses and they have to respond twice to their colleagues or peers and really expand on that, what they're feeling, why they disagree, why they agree, why they felt attached to that. It's really surprising sometimes. And I give them some prompts, some possible ways to respond to this. They ha what, what was an aha? What did you disagree with? What was a surprise? And then explain why. Now those are required. Then they meet in small groups. And they kind of bring all that together from the first bit of contact and content. And they do this via Google Doc or shared document of some sort. That is also synchronous. It is at the same time I ask them to bring it all together and respond to questions and come up with a product that they have produced together and post it as a group. And it's usually integrates with the, their writing assignment that they'll also have because I do assign papers. They're brief, weekly. And there's explanation for that, of course. Then at the end of the day, they have a quiz, a learning check, let's call it, uh, for all of these things, just to make sure they understand where we're at, right? Because so many students feel lost if they don't have something to show. Oh, look, I understood this. And, you know, we need to have some proof, right? It, not only for me, but for them to show that, that they're comfortable, that it's not vague, they're able to communicate and dialogue. It, creating and, and being in that space is great, but they also need something solid, something concrete. So I give them something concrete, a learning check. So they can be like, hey, I did all of this. This is great. And this is how I integrated into my understanding. And they feel really good. This is my grade. This is my quiz. And I do. I give them that opportunity to have that for themselves on that big chunk. So structure that I have for each unit is big. It's in-depth. You know, sometimes it's a month long. Typically, I try to keep it two weeks, but I don't want to rush it. I don't, you know, I want to make sure that they they get into it. And I hope that that clarifies the student perspective of the of the way that I manage things and the structure and the dialogue and everything. And then just to be fair, I do the same thing for meetings. There are some brief introductions. What's the purpose? Here's the strategy. We're going to plan. It's a lot of pre-work for me. And that's, you know, that's the theater part of me, right? If you plan in advance, then when it's go time, you're good. You trust yourself. You trust the process. You know what you're doing. You've done the pre-work. The foundation's in place. We're good to go. 
Once you set up that structure for meetings with a PowerPoint or slide decks or whatever you have with key questions, people know before time what the goal is, what they're doing. I'm not surprising or shocking anybody. I give folks equal access in equal time, a lot of advanced time to think about it. And we start with something fun. I always like to start with something fun or funny or something creative to connect it to the content that will be discussed. And then at the end of the day, we've got structure for what we need to do moving forward. We got an action plan, it's concrete, and we know what we're doing, how we're moving forward. And I always end on time. First of all, always plan to just fit it in the time allotted. That is 100% my preference. But that structure really, sometimes it it, it works the same face-to-face, but you can modify it when you're online. But, But that's the basic structure of how I manage these things. I love that. And thank you for ending on time. Which, which we will also try and do today as we were talking. I do, I want to, I want to continue with a structure question, but before we go there, I want to go back to the setting the stage idea. Um, okay. What I'm, um, what I would love to hear from you is what setting the stage looks like if you're not all in a shared space, a shared physical uh, simultaneous space. So it's, I can easily imagine you hanging posters around a classroom on campus. It's harder for me. I start to guess what you might do in um, an LMS or in a Zoom room to set that stage in a way, and maybe you don't, but I'm kind of wondering, like, is there a translation of, creating a shared physical stage for everyone when you're working online? Sure. Um, There are common resources that I typically use, a Google Doc or a shared document that is always available. Zoom on video, so we're sort of face-to-face, and then maybe having a second space to put your thoughts and ideas in that shared document. The second thing is give images. Say, you know, describe this image, put it in the chat box. That's an amazing thing, having chat available in a video space. Some people feel very confident in raising their hand and coming up on screen. Some people don't. So to really make it um, equitable, I think that's valuable both to allow folks to raise their hand and also to let them chat in the chat box. Um, Again, structure is very helpful. Start with the description. Describe what you see just describing. You don't have to analyze anything or apply it. That's later. That's a higher level thinking. Let's start basic with describe what you see, describe what you know, and then we can maybe move into, or maybe what you don't know about a thing, the thing, that picture. Uh, What does it make you think of? We really kind of, I want to start there often. We don't dive all the way in. Then we move into analyzing. How does that get to your goal? I set goals. I know where we're headed. So I like to ask, how does that relate to the thing, the goal for the meeting or the the class that that I'm teaching? And then relating it uh, kind of more, how does that concept relate to uh, what we talked about yesterday? Let's link it yesterday to today. You watched the video. We showed a video. How does that idea relate to the things that we already know that we've already gone through or that I want them to think through? So kind of that chain and kind of linking things together, that often sparks a dialogue. We do breakout rooms. Zoom is good for that. Um, Again, we need, and I want to create a a safe space. If it's a big Zoom meeting, we do need to break it down into smaller spaces. Those Those breakout rooms are good. 
and 25 people is not going to do it. <laughs> so we need smaller spaces. It's kind of funny. Um, last year, I started with a small group of 10 and that felt too much. People were complaining. Nope, 10 is too much. Can't do it. So I said, all right, fine. I'll drop it down to six folks. They said, that's too much. Scheduling was just a real pain for everyone trying to coordinate six folks. I have dropped it down to four for a small group. That seems doable. We're going to test it in the fall. Or excuse me, I tested it out in the fall. Um, I've got a summer class I'm teaching uh, starting in July. So I'm going to see again if four works. We tested that in the fall. So we brought it all the way down. And my point of mentioning that is that relating it really is very personal. And it's a, it's a new step for folks, often new ground. They need to feel very safe. And, you know, describing most people are good in that space. Um, but self-disclosure, that is up to people. It's not required in that first step that I mentioned. Uh, getting into the analytics or analyzing things, showing people how you're able to think through information. I'm a researcher. So how people ask questions and what types of questions they're asking is really important to me. Now, in the relationship piece and, and relating to the outside world and audiences, that is where it becomes um, very personal. And I really um, feel very strongly about making sure that people feel safe in that space and with the number of people in that space. I love all of that. And I feel like now I want a second conversation with you. That's just about teaching, like, teaching strategies. Um, I'm really taken by this idea of, of opening a meeting by having people talk about um, an image. Um, when my kids were little, I was a volunteer at our local art museum for this program that took kids, taught kids how to look at art. And the, the thing that you were taught to do with your the, the classes you took around was to teach the kids to describe what they saw. And they, 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 <laughs> they're little, right? I think like that's all they can do. No, they immediately interpret, you know, so what do you see? I see a family celebrating a birthday. No, literally, what do you see? You see a man and a woman and a child at a table, It right? Like, so, but what it does for those kids is it it puts them all in that space where their imaginations are engaged and they're processing what other people are seeing and experiencing. And it's really bonding. And it literally never occurred to me to do that, um, to start a meeting. But what a great way to pull everybody in to a shared activity that's not the agenda, which is, you know, yawn, boring. But I, since we're going to run up against time, let's shift really quickly, if we can, to the whole issue of Priya Parker and her ideas about gathering. Um, there, Okay, we need a third conversation. I want a third conversation just to explore this with you. But one thing that struck me in what you said was the amount of pre-work you put into a meeting in order to make that meeting effective, but also engaging and interesting for folks. And I think one of the things I've heard and personally experienced in terms of burnout is people's lack of time, even running between meetings, but also to plan a meeting so that it can be effective and purposeful the way you described. So I wonder if um, as a way of closing, you can give us any guidance, ideas, tips for leading meetings with purpose, even when it takes work on the front end from the facilitator. Well, sure. I mean, you know, I think for me, always planning for access. 
Access is a huge concept. Access to information. People should not be surprised by the purpose of a meeting when they arrive. And so it's it's more than just sending the agenda at, you know, six o'clock the night before. Uh, six in the evening the day before is not okay, especially if the meeting's at 8 a.m. the very next day. I think giving people enough time to really think through that content and what's coming in that meeting, their personal goals. You know, people also have personal agenda. So being able to think through their personal agenda and how that meshes with the official agenda. The second thing I think about in terms of access of information is literally accessing the information. So thinking about accommodations, visually accommodating, auditorily accommodating, uh, guidelines for communication, not overlapping and interrupting each other. That is part of the safe space and building those expectations. Now that takes time. People are experiencing more and, and having some awareness, but we often, but people need reminders. And so really thinking through what kind of fun thing or image, emoji we're going to talk about, just how to set it up at the beginning on the front side of things. Isn't it fun? Make everybody smile. People need to smile. You know, if they're bored or frustrated, it's not going to happen. Yet, like, that's a, a mental barrier, right? That's a mental block. So how can we break through that barrier right off the bat and shift into a different mindset? Um, and I think also PowerPoint, uh, a one-pager, some sort of visual something for people to follow, I think is key. Um, and I do think that when planning for a meeting, we also need to think about who's going to be in attendance. If I'm, uh, you know, if I'm there and I'm manage, I'm the manager, my pre-work might be different. If I'm, if it's, or it's my manager or my upline, it's different than if I'm just hosting a meeting with my peers versus host, like being in a meeting with my supervisor. So I think all of those things, uh, I handle it very differently. I always try to prep questions for myself. Uh, what am I curious about? what do I want to know? And if I'm curious, there's, I feel like that's a problem, right? I ought to be curious about something. And so I'm curious about their response to if there's time available for that activity, what might that look like? Or where, where does this align with their goals? I really try to think through my curiosities and make sure that there's space for them also to be curious. Um, gosh, you know, other than that, I feel like asking later, like, does there need to be a meeting? Could it have been an email? Like thinking about that, right? Um, could it have been in Slack? Because is there always a value to a meeting? And then be honest with yourself about that when you think that stuff through on the front side. The last time I taught first-year students um, in writing, I taught it, I taught the course about curiosity. Because I feel like if you can teach college students to be curious, that will get them through everything they need to get through. It has been such a delight to get to know the three of you and Stephanie to hear your ideas. I'm wondering if as we exit, so I, I know you and I would both recommend Priya Parker and you're going to share some links with us for drama-based um, drama based teaching. Is there anything else you would recommend that people read? And then we can end on that note. Well, my favorite right now is James Clear, Atomic Habits. 
that taught me a lot about setting up timelines, setting expectations, making progress for myself on a personal level. And so I feel like that can apply to teaching and leadership as well. So that's my favorite. It's a great book. It's a great recommendation. Thank you so much for spending your morning with me. And thank you for everything you've taught me, not just about teaching and leadership, but about hosting a meeting that has a broader um, approach to accessibility than I typically think about. So I'm grateful to all of you. Well, thank you so much for having us. I hope to see you again. All right, my friend, now that we're done, I want you to do two things for me. First, choose one thing that came to mind while you were listening. Maybe it was something we talked about, or maybe it was something that occurred to you while you were listening. It doesn't matter. Just put it into practice this week. I want you to take action. It can be imperfect action, inspired action, scared to do this new thing action. I don't care. Just take action. Don't overthink it. Don't talk yourself out of it. Just do it. And then second, tell me how it goes. DM me on LinkedIn or Instagram or shoot me an old-fashioned email at carol at theclariogroup.com. And once you tell me what you've tried, you'll be entered into a monthly drawing for a $20 gift certificate to bookshop.org. You'll get to expand your learning and I'll get to help you build your library. It's a win for both of us. So that's it. Try something out and then tell me how it went. I can't wait to hear from you.